Welcome to Chet Talks, expert insights at the intersection of health and technology. Chet Talks is brought to you by the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, an innovator in clinical research and care. Learn more at chettalks.org. My name is Ray Dorsey. I'm a neurologist at the University of Rochester and the director for the Center for Health and Technology. Today, we have an outstanding guest. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. David Brayler uh, to Chet Talks. Dr. Brailler was our country's first health information technology czar, and in 2004, President George W. Bush appointed Dr. Brailler to be our country's first national health IT coordinator. There, he laid the foundation for many of the digital health changes that we are seeing occurring today. Uh, Dr. Brailler was subsequently was the managing partner at Health Evolution Partners, where he made investments in digital health and in improving our healthcare delivery system. Today, he serves as the chairman of Health Evolution in San Francisco, right here it's sunny as opposed to snowing in Rochester. He earned his medical degree from West Virginia University, as did my father. I don't think Dr. Baylor knew that. I didn't and know that. In economics from the Wharton School. He began his career as an academic internist, researcher, and professor at the Wharton School, where a young Ray Dorsey had the good fortune to be his student. Uh, David, welcome to Chet Talks. Oh, it's great to be with you, Ray, and those were great times back then, weren't they? Yes. World <laughs> <laughs> yes. seemed simpler. World did seem simpler. So uh, before, uh, before we get into digital medicine, uh, you recently wrote a really moving piece uh, uh, on the bravery and empathy of clinicians addressing the COVID pandemic. And 40 years ago, uh, 39 years ago, 40 years ago to today, we were confronting a pandemic of a very different well, a, a different pandemic. And we were confronting an unknown virus that was uniformly and rapidly fatal, and there was no federal response. And so I don't know, you can see this New York Times article, this first New York Times article um, reporting on a rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals, uh, men uh, first in New York and then in San Francisco. And it reports that the cause of this outbreak is unknown, and there is yet no evidence of contagion. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Ullman, the author, didn't know that this was actually caused, no one knew that it was caused by a virus that was later identified uh, as HIV. And the course of this uh, illness uh, was changed by a group of uh, very brave, uh, generally men and some women, uh, who were most directly affected uh, by this disease. And you were actually on the front lines uh, confronting uh, HIV as a clinician. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and maybe some parallels to COVID. Well, I, yeah, I, I arrived at Penn uh, after AIDS was known, but before protease inhibitors came on the scene. And, you know, Ray, well, it wasn't uh, something that had the chance to uh, become widespread in the population. It was something that had an enormous stigma attached to it, both for the patients and the clinicians and an enormous fear about infectivity. You know, every clinician by 1983 or 84 knew that it was blood and semen born and that, you know, general transmission through respiratory or contact was not only improbable, was nearly impossible. Um, but the public still didn't understand that. And what everyone knew is it was a universally fatal illness, <coughs> excuse me, with a very ugly uh, death. And so, you know, the clinicians that got involved with that were... Uh, you know, just had lots of challenges. First of all, some of them did die. If you were doing surgery on a patient and cut your hand, 
uh, and they were HIV positive, you had a chance, a good chance of being infected, and I saw it happen. Uh, but, you know, also just the clinicians that, that I remember a nurse that worked in our clinic who uh, was asked to leave her apartment because her landlord thought that she would spread this disease throughout the complex. And, you know, I remember the fight that happened then. And her fight was like very many patients that had to deal with the social and financial and other challenges because of a, a society that just wasn't prepared. So I think there are some parallels, but the one lesson that stood out to me that I called out in that op-ed is just how courageous and active and empathetic and compassionate the clinicians were then and now. You know, we see people uh, on all the front lines. Uh, many people I trained with are in New York now, and they're dealing with, you know, what everyone knows, the term of a, a war scene, uh, where, you know, it's, a, a, it's hopefully slowing down, but there's an enormous incoming and lack of support. and I just really admire the clinicians that are doing that. So I wanted to call it out. You wrote in your piece, uh, what did America's clinicians do then? They didn't shy away, hold back, go on strike, call in suck, sick or run away. They did the opposite. They ran in, they jumped. They put all their hearts into taking care of people with this mysterious and grave illness. Some clinicians gave their lives. Yeah, and it's the same thing now. And, you know, I tell uh, many clinicians who are in leadership roles in government or business or not-for-profits uh, that, you know, they constantly ask for advice about how should they think about the world. And I tell them always stay at their clinician roots, that while all these different agencies or companies or entities are trying to improve health, and it's often an abstraction because it's across large populations with statistical improvements in health, that they always have to understand what it means to a person that's sick. And if they can't translate what they're doing to that level with a doctor or a nurse or a respiratory therapist working with someone that's ill or preventing someone from being ill, what they're doing is probably not the right thing to focus on. So I think it's a good lens to always hold up for everything we do in healthcare. The initial federal response to the AIDS epidemic was silence. And that really didn't change until Rock Hudson came uh, forth and revealed his diagnosis. He was actually a friend of President and Nancy yeah. Reagan at the time. And then Ryan White uh, developed it, was actually kicked out of his school because yeah. uh, they were afraid, just like you said, your nurse was afraid that it would be spread, even though he got it from hemophilia, transfusions from hemophilia. In response to the COVID pandemic, you write that every American can see that clinicians do not have the personal protective equipment they need. Uh, why have we, or maybe the federal government, <clears throat> let clinicians, and to some extent, the public, in your words, exposed, unprotected, and unsupported? Well, first of all, I think, you know, that after we get through the crisis phase of this, there will be numerous investigative bodies and congressional hearings and, uh, you know, many deep analyses of why we were left so unprepared. But, you know, let me take it to the most simple level. Uh, we have known, and you might recall this from your study at the Wharton School, that one of the areas where any human, let alone a group of humans, misprocess the world around them is in dealing with low probability, high consequence events. If something is very, very unlikely to happen on any given day, but if it does, it's terrible, we don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to plan for it. We don't know how to uh, lay the groundwork for it. This is a flaw in human reasoning. And so, this is what happened. We've known for a long time that there would be a pandemic. I was in the Bush administration during SARS. I saw the gear up. And, you know, uh, 
there were people in the Obama administration that dealt with H1N1 and MERS. And we've all read the books on the great influenza. So we knew it was happening. But on any given day, it's easier just to pretend like it won't. And that's why we had, for example, the crimson contagion simulation that was done just two years ago. It was simulating the flu, but very similar dynamics, very similar infectivity, very similar virulence. And all the things that are happening today uh, came out of that tabletop exercise as the same flaws. So, you know, part of it is we just don't know how to deal with things that could be devastating, but just it's better to get through the day and start again tomorrow. By the way, I think there's parallels to climate change, even though that's not a one day catastrophe. On any given day, nothing's going to go wrong. And so the probability of a disaster on any day is low. So I just think this is something that evolution of humans have not fixed. And maybe neurologists can figure out how to rewire our brains, right, to uh, be able to think about those events. But you stand on top of that a government that is distracted, uh, that is divided, and that is uh, not willing to fund the level of support that we need. And we can go through some of the details of that for preparedness. And I say this not about this administration. This has been a consistent theme that after disaster, after 9-11, we funded all kinds of things, including, by the way, field hospitals and field respirators. And that stockpile has dwindled year after year because five years after SARS or 9-11, people in Congress and the federal government might say, geez, can't we whittle 5% off of that national stockpile budget to use it? For Medicaid and everybody's like yeah we need to do that and five years later so let's take another 10% off that's just what happens and so we need to think at coming out of this about how do we institutionalize the preparedness so it's not subject to the normal physical and political processes that happen with daily things in Washington. So you mentioned a couple and one a great book on the great influenza John Barry I think the author that's out exactly. you alluded to but didn't really quite say black swans as these rare events that have sure. a disproportionate uh, impact. So if you like to read like David does and like I do, uh, those are two uh, outstanding books. There have been some good things that have happened uh, in the setting of this COVID pandemic. Uh, one is the digital transformation of uh, healthcare. Uh, telemedicine may be having its finest hour in the setting of the COVID pandemic. Uh, what's been most oppressive to you? Uh, well, I think the general response of the health IT community has been uh, important. I remember during Katrina uh, when we saw the Red Cross taking blankets and food and, uh, you know, Walmart delivering supplies and everyone mobilizing. That was a local event in Louisiana. But the same mobilization, and I was in uh, Washington at the time, and the health IT community was caught a bit flat-footed and didn't know what to do uh, to support that. And we started Katrina Health, which was an index of all of the uh, prescription data for the people in the affected areas. And by the way, it's part of the normal disaster response now. Uh, but, you know, this is a different world. I've seen the health IT community in general step up and be center stage in many of the dialogues that are happening. And so you're right, telemedicine uh, has finally found its footing. And I say that not because telemedicine's done something different, it's because the obvious benefit of telemedicine that's been sitting in front of policy leaders and payer leaders and provider leaders for more than a decade finally was discovered, and that's good. And I think there's an interesting debate about, can you put that genie back in, in the bottle? My belief is no. Uh, but I've also seen uh, the 
uh, for example, um, common health commons that the Rockefeller Foundation stood up to pursue other information sharing goals converted itself towards COVID and has now released COVID check to help take people through a workup of their symptoms and steer them towards testing and ultimately towards treatment facilities. And so, you know, there's an enormous outpouring from the IT community trying to support, trying to help. And I think it's really something to be very proud of. Are there shortcomings? Are there things that we should be doing better? Um... Oh, well, <clears throat> yeah, but this gets back to a bigger issue, uh, which was, and it really goes back to the health IT initiative. We had four elements of the strategy, two of which now uh, have been put in place. Widespread access to information tools for clinicians. Got that courtesy of the Great Recession's uh, stimulus funding. Finally, with the rules on interoperability that um, dropped out of ONC and CMS uh, earlier this year, we checked the box on interoperability. I think those are necessary and sufficient now to be able to create real information flow. Uh, the two we never got done were uh, consumers. I think consumers are moving slowly. Um, but the one that really bothers me the most is a revamping of the public health community's IT infrastructure. Uh, after 9-11, there was a vast amount of funding put into connecting the most local police department up through state all the way to uh, federal law enforcement agencies. So there could be fast communication, sharing of data, sharing of information, aggregation of information to be able to understand trends or things that put us at risk for terrorism or other kinds of incidents. And at the time, there was proposed a very similar infrastructure for the CDC and state and local public health, an information sharing network, a set of interoperability standards, a set of tools to be able to quickly assimilate and digest information. And of course, that never got funded. And, and so, you know, the very backbone of the information architecture of public health is broken. And, and to say it's underfunded is wrong. It's obsolete. And so that's uh, very disappointing. And I hope that some of the emergency money or something coming out of this will re-architect, will go back to those plans and re-architect the kind of backbone we need. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't call it shortcomings, but, you know, there's obviously a very active debate now about some of the more modern ways of doing contact tracing and isolation we could talk about, but I don't think that's a failing. I think it's more of a dialogue that we weren't prepared for at this point. So one country that seems to have embraced this uh, IT integration across the public health uh, sector is in Taiwan. Um, they, uh, Taiwan has embraced smartphones, remote monitoring and digital communications in ways that I think would be even unimaginable to us. You know, they can trace people when they arrive into the country, when they get to their home, uh, provide diagnostic kits and remote monitoring for people in their home so they actually never come into hospitals and facilities. The, every time I see us building tents, I get nervous and I feel like we're building, we're gonna just foster the spread of the disease. Can you tell a little bit of what's going on in Taiwan and what lessons or how that might be applicable to the U.S.? Well, there are several countries, and Taiwan is a good example. South Korea has done the same. Um, you know, there have been, uh, there's been dialogue. I actually was involved in a dialogue with people in Japan uh, three days ago about this very similar thing. And it comes down to uh, this, uh, being able to access information uh, about that comes from your phone, geolocation data, uh, for example, that allows you to um, know if you are positive, uh, 
where you've been and therefore what phones have come in contact with you. And it's not perfect, but it rapidly and radically uh, automates the contact tracing process that takes so many people. The estimate of the number of people we need in the United States in, way, in phase two and of the climb out of this crisis is more than 100,000 people to do contact tracing to be able to go back to more traditional public health mitigation. And if we can leverage that with IT, like South Korea or Taiwan has done, so we can quickly alert you that you've been in contact with someone that is positive and use that for rapid tracing and testing and frankly for the enforcement of quarantine because we know if you're out and about or uh, social isolation. We know if your phone's close to people. Now, you know, if we did that, we could radically change uh, wave two. On the other hand, I just described things that would be deep incursions into the liberty and privacy of the American public that the government has no authorization to do unless there is truly an emergency declaration on the scale of a nuclear war. And so, you know, I don't expect that dialogue to work through. That's a very important dialogue in time for us to help here. But I do think that there can be voluntary mechanisms. Uh, you saw the Google Apple Alliance uh, to embed in their operating system, uh, kind of a, uh, a watered down version of contact tracing, if you would, uh, you know, one that could be acceptable, but already there's a debate about that. Um, so, you know, we do have something that we can do, uh, but I'm not sure that we're able to grasp for it at this point. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to watch and see how that plays out. What should we be grasping for? Should we be grasping for this? Oh, I, I, I do. I think, but this gets to a broader issue, you know, which is that, you know, what, what was the job I was hired into the government to do? To take a highly fragmented, overlapping, conflicting set of government actions across the federal government and then the federal government with the state around health information technology. You know, every cabinet agency was involved in it. There were 35 sub-cabinet agencies that were involved. So many different conflicting agendas and messages and to try to tie it up into one overarching agenda, one overarching strategy, one overarching budget. And you know, I wouldn't say we succeeded. I think we set the foundation for it to succeed because it took 10 years for that to finally grow from its roots. We were doing that to create opportunities and improvements, not to deal with a crisis like coronavirus, but we have exactly the same issue today. No one's in charge. There are conflicting agendas. There are conflicting budgets. There are every cabinet agency is involved. And I would say at this point, probably every sub-cabinet agency is involved there are debates about the role of the federal government and federal state relationships. We, we, health IT is just one piece of a broader architecture of no one being in charge and not being able to have a rapid coordinated response. Again, this is exactly what the simulation showed. Uh, and the whole point was to have a game plan for who was in charge of doing what, who would be doing messaging, who would be dealing with standing up capacity in the states who would be dealing with moving resources around none of that has happened it's been really uh, a very um, a very broken response i think even deeper than what has come out in the media and you know i put that back to the fundamental authorities that uh let's say the cdc should have uh, uh that you know that i think there should be a, a capacity during an emergency like this, when we declare a public health emergency to kind of, if you would, break the glass and access authorities uh, and powers that 
would normally not be available in terms of enforcing quarantines, in terms of moving material and mankind around, if you would kind of nationalizing healthcare resources to a degree that we can operate the capacity of hospitals in New York as one, uh, which by the way has done, and it's been done through a collaboration of the state, city, and private leadership. You know, it's been that kind of a public-private cooperation that I think is the backbone of our healthcare industry and one of the most successful aspects of it. So my point is that I think that's going to be the outcome, but we don't have any of those authorities now. So we've been caught flat-footed both with technology, but deep, more deeply with our real response capacity overall. Uh, you mentioned a lot about the federal government. You also sit on the board of Walgreens, one of the largest pharmacy uh, companies in the United States, if not the world. Uh, they, like other pharmaceutical companies, are looking to develop health clinics uh, around the country. Uh, is there a role that they can be playing? Oh, there is, uh, and and they are doing it along with CVS and Rite Aid and Walmart. You know, uh, all the health-related, prescription-related retailers have uh, really thrown themselves deeply into being part of distributing testing capacity, creating sites where safe testing can be done, uh, being able to make resources available, whether it's prescriptions or other things. I think the question becomes what happens in phase two when we start climbing out, is there an additional role that they can take? And, and you know, one of the things that, that we'll have to do, remember if you look at the Gottlieb McClellan paper, which I think is the most thoughtful framework for how to climb out of the crisis into the second phase of, of uh, if you would, partial economic recovery. It's widespread, easily accessible, low uh, risk testing, then contact tracing in isolation. And so, you know, those entities could play a role of making uh, testing available on every street corner, which is kind of the capacity we need to have. So yeah, I do think they have a role and uh, you know, they'll be part of the fabric of healthcare for a long time. And I expect that what will come out of this will be to some degree an acceleration of those companies' uh, kind of retail primary care plans, because I think it'll be seen overall that, uh, that you know, we need to have more deep resources for uh, primary care in the future. Absent a vaccine or a miraculous treatment, it seems like testing is the only way we end our current isolation. Uh, do you have a forecast on when you think widespread testing either for the virus itself or for antibodies might be available? Uh, I, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I, like many the people that are on this and you, um, you know, have listened in to various experts and chatted with people in various companies that are doing uh, standing up testing capacity. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of Keystone Cops, you know, because as we get the tests approved, uh, we don't have the reagents and we don't have the PPE and we may not have the staff or the capacity. And so, so you know, I think this, this is kind of in a way the classic American response to a crisis, which is we stumble around and we make a lot of mistakes. And then, uh, you know, what always happens is, again, I'll come back to this public-private collaboration, uh, particularly state governments and the private sector will come roaring forward. And I do think testing capacity is going up dramatically. On the other hand, I think it's not going to be until you know May or June till we have the kind of capacity that we really need to have to make sure that if someone's sick, they can be tested. I mean, think of the most practical case. Someone comes to work, they've got a cough. What, what happens? Do they get sent home? Uh, well, they should be tested. And if they're positive, everyone around them tested. That's going to take readily accessible testing. And so 
That's not here. It's not even close. I think it's coming, but it's not going to happen right away. And I think this is one of the reasons that there's a tremendous amount of hedging on when we can start removing the kind of more draconian social isolation techniques to move to more activity. But it's not here yet. And, you know, I have to say that in a way, I really admired, you know, what the CDC was trying to do early on, uh, which is, you know, to go from a two-strand to a three-strand PCR test to, you know, so there's three points of confirmation for the virus. To, and they do that because of a very simple reason. The two-strand testing that's been the hallmark of public health PCR for years has a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives. The positive predictive value of those tests is in the high 80s, you know, maybe in the very low 90s. And so, you know, three stands takes it up to the, you know, 99 plus percent. And you have, you're dealing with a lot fewer testing errors. But they also messed it up. And that test is way harder to scale. So, you know, in a way, we kind of, uh, you know, the mistake, I'm sure there'll be lots of tactical errors, lots of executional errors, lots of bad decisions. But in the end, where we are with testing is to some degree a result of us trying to take the next step forward in technology to be able to have much more precise public health tests. And we're paying the price for it now. And I think we'll see the same thing with antibodies. It's going to be quite a while till we get out of the kind of a world where a lot of the antibody tests have a lot of false negatives. And so, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done. Some ways it doesn't seem like we've advanced very far from 1918. Our interventions are almost the same in 2020 today than they, as they were in 1918 with the influenza pandemic. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, to some degree, public health is still the same public health process uh, that it was back then. And this gets to my point about how technology can play a role. You know, we, you know, for example, if you look at, uh, you know, the two fundamental aspects of public health, which is to keep people from getting infected, and then secondly, to get them triaged into resources if they do, uh, we've talked already about what we could do to modernize public health during crises to reduce the infection rate by using our digital tools to create uh, social isolation and to do contact tracing. So I won't repeat that. But, you know, the other part of this is we have, we know that, you know, at least 80% of the people that get this don't go to the hospital, but they need to be monitored, particularly because we see some share of people fall very quickly from health to distress to death. And, you know, a lot of those are people that don't have pre-existing conditions, diabetes, cardiac disease, obesity. And, you know, obviously there are a number of genetic studies going on to try to consider what's happening with those patients. And I don't know if you've seen the recent reports of, uh, it looks like there's a correlation of those with DIC. There's a lot of clotting being found in lungs and kidneys. And, you know, is it causal or, but it's a different avenue of, of exploration rather than something's affecting respiration, it could be affecting circulation. But my point is, for people that we don't want to come to the hospital, we don't want them coming because, you know, if you look in China, uh, you know, familial contact was how it spread. If you look in Europe, it's in hospitals where it spreads. So we don't want people in hospitals. Well, what can the tech world do? How do you modernize public health? Well, you have an Apple Watch, we can measure your pulse, your respiratory rate, in the next version, uh, all rumors in the Bay Area have it, there's going to be a pulse oximeter to measure PO2, uh, and you can take your temperature. I mean, we, the basic monitoring you can do in a hospital, you can do with an Apple Watch, which means that if someone starts to deteriorate, you can pull them in. So even with early treatment, technology can play a role of completely changing 
how public health operates, but it's going to have to be picked up by the boots and thrown into the future because it won't get there uh, based on how we've managed it in the past 20 years. So we're going to tell everyone listening that you're going to have questions, uh, opportunity to ask questions <laughs> of uh, Dr. Brailler uh, at the end. I'm going to ask him a few more things a little bit about the future, but we'd love to see uh, questions from all of you. Um, we need to keep people at home and care for them at home and telemedicine's way to do that. You said the genie's out of the bottle. It's not going back in. Uh, the changes that have enabled telemedicine to be adopted have been temporary. CMS has enabled Medicare to cover telemedicine in the home, cover independent geographic restrictions, and waive restrictions on state, state licensing for federal programs. Uh, are these going to be changes going to become permanent? That's a great question. Uh, you know, we really have, um, besides a, a pandemic, we have two massive experiments going on in federal policy. One, as you pointed out, on the coverage and licensure and kind of access to services side, the other one on the discovery side. And, um, you know, I, my suspicion is, because if you look at the list of things that have been approved, they are things that many health reformers across the aisles have wanted for a long time. Uh, we don't want doctors trapped into state licensure. We want to have more liberal and fair treatment of telemedicine. Uh, we want some of the restrictions uh, uh, of the uh, you know, anti-nurement and the other pieces of health policy from the past that have gotten in the way of the future that we see. Um, you know, in a way, this is giving an opportunity for those to be removed. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be pressure to put them back on. I think the question is going to be, who has the authority to keep them there? To some degree, CMS can make policy decisions about coverage. They don't need an act of Congress to continue paying for telemedicine. We've all known for a long time that that could be treated as a fair and equal part of the healthcare industry. And my guess is that genie can't be put in the back of the bottle and no one will want it because suddenly we're going to see the value and the American public will see the value and it's game over, it stays. The licensure issues gets into a federal state control thing, and technically that is in the rights of the states to, to, to uh, control. But uh, the Federation of, Med of State Medical Boards has for years had a proposal to create a syndication of states so they all have reciprocity with each other. So it equivalates, it creates an equivalent of a federal licensure policy. So I don't know if that'll move forward or not. I hope it does. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of the changes will stick if for no other reason that we're going to be caught in this you know, crisis for a year and a half, and by that time, no one's going to remember what the policies used to be. So you know, I, I think they're here to stay. I, I think so the bigger well, question, I'm sorry? Go ahead. Well, I think the bigger question is, uh, where do we go from here? Because you know, if you look at the, really across my career, you know, efficiency of the healthcare delivery system has been the number one challenge, getting more for less money, reducing inpatient utilization, squeezing inpatient capacity out, creating integration, uh, creating value, paying for value. Uh, you know, this has been the arc of a 25 year effort. And, you know, to some degree, there's a debate now that has already begun about, um, have we pushed too far? Uh, you know, okay, we squeezed tons of hospital beds out and luckily we are the most, we have the most ICU beds per capita almost in the world but our hospital capacity we all see in New York is, is weak. And so, you know, maybe efficiency isn't the only goal here. It's somehow balancing efficiency versus resilience. 
And uh, at the same time, you know, can we ever really return to a value-based payment discussion because the healthcare industry is going to be left uh, really radically um, broken financially. Uh, you know, the, there's already been across the board debt downgrades and targeted downgrades by the rating agencies. We're already seeing the effects of so many elective procedures being postponed or canceled and uh, you know, the whole kind of machine of healthcare slowing down in a way that I'm proud of to gear up for this. But economic fallout on healthcare, just like the rest of the industry, is going to be tremendous. And so who knows what the health policy agenda is going to look like in care delivery uh, for some time after this. So my guess is we go back to some very fundamental debates about what do we want the healthcare system to look like. So let me push you on that a little bit. So medical centers across the country are losing between $2 million and $8 million a day. $2 million to $8 million. <clears throat> Rochester will lose something like that. Mayo Clinic has announced furloughs. Um, universities, which, in, uh, are, are, which have medical centers, have their economics tied in, uh, completely almost to the, uh, the fate of medical centers. Medical centers don't make money uh, seeing Medicare beneficiaries at $70 for a telemedicine visit. They like the facility right. fees and lots of other things that they get. Weren't they going to push back uh, against telemedicine and look for the ex-ante what was happening before? Well, I think there's, yeah, you know, again, who knows how that plays out, but there's two issues here. One is that there is a hole in 2020 finances for healthcare organizations, and maybe it extends into 2021. Um, and that hole was created by the industry's rapid response. Then there is ongoing challenges. So let's talk about each one. There, you know, obviously the hospital industry was disappointed with what they got from the CARES Act in terms of the funding of hospitals. And so no surprise in the next tranche, there's a lot more money at least being discussed to create a bit of a bailout for healthcare. No one's going to let healthcare organizations collapse in the middle of this or frankly after this because everyone finally sees their value. And, and they've done this all for the public's benefit. I mean, exactly. And again, I think this, this is not no good deed goes unpunished. This is a good deed that will be rewarded. It's going to take a while. I think the real issue though is, uh, you know, after the biological crisis, we then have the physical crisis and the economic crisis that will lead to a radical downward pressure on affordability of healthcare services. And, you know, enormous pressure on healthcare inflation, uh, premium growth, um, you know, because I think we're going to have a very, very challenging economic environment for a year or two after. So, you know, the, the issue comes down to something even more fundamental than telemedicine, which is the premise of healthcare has been built around a 5% to 10% inflation every year. And you know we could see deflation of healthcare services because of an enormous pushback from the whole of society in terms of what's affordable. So you know I think the challenge is going to be how do you work in an environment that creates affordability? And the truth is, while you get less revenue for a telemedicine visit, it also costs you a lot less too. And you can do a lot more of them. And so my guess is there's a lot of CFOs sharpening their pencils and saying, okay, if we're really moving into an affordability crisis, maybe I should do more telemedicine and start figuring out how to radically lower my cost to deal with this new world. Maybe, we'll see how that plays out. You've discussed a lot about healthcare delivery. Uh, the whole research enterprise has also been affected. 
uh, clinical trials for almost every condition known to man have been paused. Uh, is it the time for virtual clinical trials? Well, I think, you know, just like telemedicine has come to the fore, you know, virtual clinical trials, whether they're, you know, completely virtual, you know, in silico uh, or done in a way that doesn't require the same legacy fixed infrastructure that care delivery has uh, certainly have been selected for. And, you know, we kind of have uh, a, uh, just like if you would, the crisis has advanced the work of health IT. This crisis has also put the 21st Century Cures Act on the fast track, uh, you know, in terms of the ability to collect more empirical data. I mean, if you look at what's happening, we have the most fastest, uh, most agile clinical studies being done in the history of America right now in hospitals in terms of combinations of various drugs that are layered on top of, you know, the supportive treatment for patients that are progressing through or very distressed with, uh, with COVID. And so, you know, I, I think coming out of that is going to be, wait a minute, these were too sloppy and these were too field oriented, but we learned a lot about how to do much more rapid, much more agile, much more virtual trials. So I think that's a win here. I, even though, yeah, you're right, studies have been paused for a while. There's an ethos that I think will come from this, that science and innovation can move way faster than we ever thought, and it can be messier, and we're still going to come out. Now, on the other hand, uh, I don't think it's a good idea for politicians to be in charge of this. I don't think it's a good idea for politicians to be promoting certain unproven drugs, particularly, frankly, when every clinician I've talked to tells me that Plaquenil doesn't help, and maybe we'll see if it's really the case or not. You know, this is not being done in an orderly or thoughtful way. This crisis has gotten out ahead of it. But I do think what's going to come out of this is people seeing that we can do a lot more, a lot faster with more empirical data uh, and build on the information infrastructure we have and use AI and other tools to help target ourselves towards indications faster than we ever thought. And I'm encouraged by that. Uh, so we're getting a question directly on this from Thomas Sablinski. Hi, Thomas. Um, can you please comment on the biopharmaceutical industry and contract research organizations resistance to embrace technology and clinical trials? On their own admission, the enterprise is 25 years behind other sectors of the economy. Uh, they've been more advanced in conducting telemedicine, wearable device-driven clinical trials. Thousands of clinical studies would not be stopped or canceled now. Yeah. Yeah, you know, look, I don't know which causes the problem, uh, you know, the inertia in industry or the caution of the regulators. And I think in the end, the two operate together as tandem stars caught in each other's gravitational pull. And, and you know, I'm very impressed with uh, the FDA's flexibility uh, around supporting, uh, you know, more agile, more rapid trials in terms of using technology to leverage things. It's, it's, it's a bit breathtaking given how slow and cautious that we've always wanted the FDA to be right, to be, because we want it to be right. Uh, we don't want, uh, you know, we want science in the end. But the, you know, they've shown an adaptability. And I think while I feel like CMS on the care delivery side is going to have enormous pressure to not go back to the old ways, I'm not certain that the FDA is going to face the same pressure. They could easily revert back to the old ways. And if it wasn't for 21st century cures, that was kind of moving them in that direction anyway, uh, I think they would revert back. So I think the wild card here is industry. And, you know, I am so impressed talking to the CEOs of some of the big pharma companies and some of the mid-tiers about how much they have thrown down the gauntlet in their own organizations to push fast and to put aside uh, the... 
kind of second guessing and the, you know, the uh, confidence that's built around a lot of the different projects to, to get results fast. I think that could be a culture shift. And so we could end up being a much more agile discovery, uh, biomedical discovery process, but I think it's gonna take really proof in the pudding. And that means therapeutics or vaccine coming out that demonstrates that rapidity works. And if nothing comes out of this, people will conclude rapidity doesn't work. Um, other countries have monitored COVID patients with tracking bracelets and issued fines if they break social isolation. Do you think the U.S. could implement such a model? Uh, we could, but we won't. We have the technical capacity to do that. I can assure you that everyone's geolocation is being tracked by at least 30 advertising companies right now to a level that you would, uh, we, well, most people on this call know, but uh, you know, but for us to do that uh, in plain sight and under uh, the auspices of a government program, I, I cannot imagine it. It would, take, it would take a pandemic with truly terrible death rates for people to give in on those fights, I think. And while this is terrible, I think this is just not the fight that people will have on it. A political question. Uh, why do you think the Republican Senate refuses to consider increased funding for hospitals? Uh, I don't really know why. I don't think it's antipathy to hospitals. Uh, this uh, Senate has been friendly to the healthcare industry. My guess is um, there's, uh, uh, there's probably a different sense of the sequence of who should be supported. And I do support what was in the, uh, the CARES Act in terms of funding two things, which are businesses so they don't shut down and uh, deeper unemployment benefits for people. I think there's nothing else that would be equivalent to that in terms of money. And I know state and local governments were very worried uh, and hospitals were, but uh, you know, I think they got the first step right. And the question is gonna be the next step and frankly, how deep of a physical hole we create through this. Um, but my guess is we have trillions more to go before it's over for state and local governments, for healthcare, another bailout for small employers probably, uh, who knows what else. But uh, I, th I think there's no way they can hold off funding healthcare organizations. Um, wouldn't the national healthcare system make response to problems like this much more efficient and effective? And maybe related to that, uh, are the shortcomings in employer-based health insurance Coming, becoming really clear and is Medicare for all met its time? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Uh, and I think it could go either way because let me just give the rational, uh, ra the rationale on both sides. Okay, um, we just went through this terrible disaster. And if we had a unified healthcare system, top to bottom, one governance mechanism, one capacity, one set of budgets, one set of operating guidelines, we could quickly respond, we could build capacity, we could uh, put in place all of the things we need to put in because we don't have to deal with these collaborations of 50 people or 100 people all around the table agreeing and state and local getting in the way and HCA deciding to do it one way and 10 at the other. Um, that is a very good argument. I think people that look at kind of the safety net level of this will argue that. Now the flip side is, uh, you know, you look at the one nation that has an iconic national health service uh, is Britain, and Britain has fumbled this terribly. And the reason is not because of anything wrong with the national health service, but the national health service is accountable 
to the government. And the government decided to ignore the crisis and therefore the National Health Service was put on stand down until the government decided to respond. And so, you know, one thing about, so that argument would say, and by the way, you know, the federal governments who bumbled this response, I think the heroes in this crisis are the public and private collaborations, state and local governments, private companies, not-for-profits, kind of working together despite the mess that's happening at the federal level. So I think people could also say, boy, the last thing we want is to put all of our eggs in a basket where this can turn into a political theater and uh, you know, a campaign rally and sound bites and the real issues aren't getting addressed. The one thing about our healthcare system people have to remember is that while it's unruly and ungovernable and it's a mess and it's got cracks and holes and coverage, it's terrible. But the one advantage it has is it cannot be put under the thumb of the government and told what to do. It has too many other constituents who are not governed by that process who will squeak and cry if it starts getting managed the wrong way. And that's what's happened here. So I think the debate will happen, but I don't know which way it breaks. I think it's probably too early to tell. And so one big difference between Medicare for All and National Health Service is that Medicare for All would be one in federal insurer, but care would still be provided by private entities and all. Uh, um, yeah, I guess that's a, that's a separate issue. I've, uh, I think once you have one payer, uh, you have one provider. Uh, because, um, you know, if one payer is the entire market, okay, what do you do? You take it or you leave it. And if you leave it, you're out of business. So I dispute that, you know, I, I dispute that single payer um, turns into anything other than National Health Service, because I just don't see how a thriving private sector, a, an innovation-oriented sector, a competitive sector operates when there's one trough to go feed at. So we have a University of Rochester-specific question. I don't know if you know George Engel. He's the father of the biopsychosocial model uh, for health, which underpins the medical school curriculum at sure. the University of Rochester. James Tiffs asks, what would George Engel think about telemedicine? That's a good question. You probably can answer that better than I could. Uh, what do you think? I think in many ways, uh, telemedicine allows a more personal contact and more personal relationship. Uh, so in the 1930s, 40% of patient-physician encounters were in the home. And the epitome of uh, patient-centered care is actually the house call where the doctor came saw sure. the patient on their terms. And that telemedicine allows the second generation of that to occur and that you see people on their terms and their natural environments. And so whatever you lose on the physical exam, you more than make up in terms of a social setting. I think there's something really, really, really powerful about clinicians coming to patients on their terms and seeing them in their environment. There it is. And patients to come see us uh, on our terms. Yeah, there, there it is. I certainly think the, one of the issues that, again, will come out of this crisis is the uh, what we've done to our clinicians. This is something, again, I called out in the op-ed. You know, the clinicians uh, in America have become the fix-it for everything. The EHR doesn't collect data well. Well, the clinicians will just have to change their workflow and, and collect the data. It's hard to use this new screen or whatever it is. We need to collect data for the study. Clinicians have become the utility players, and there's a reason that there's very, very high degrees of burnout. And, you know, I view telemedicine as a liberating technology for clinicians as well as for patients, because I do think in the telemedicine studies that I've seen, there's actually more contact time with the patient than there often is when they're in person. So I, I'm hoping that one thing that comes out of this, whether it's telemedicine or something else, is that our clinicians get liberated from being under the thumb 
uh, of so many broken processes in the healthcare industry. I hope so too. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Is there anything we can or should do as providers and uh, providers and advocacy in the space to help influence testing? What voice can we uh, offer that actually moves the needle? Voice of clinicians. I feel a, re uh, a level of responsibility, but do not know how to get above the noise from Sarah Jones. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I was going to say that uh, last part before you read it in the question, which is there's so much noise on this topic. I'm not sure how to have an influence at the federal level. I wouldn't even try. And besides, let's be honest, it's not really in the federal purview to deal with testing. That's a state issue. And I'm glad the federal government stepped up and I'm glad that the CDC has finally gotten turned around. But, you know, the FDA came to the salvation here by allowing so many other companies to begin testing. So, you know, I think this is a local problem. You know, to me, this is when we become a confederation of city states. And, you know, locally, the question becomes, how do you get testing capacity in your zip codes so that when someone is at school and the kid starts sneezing and the teacher says, I want them out of the classroom, they can be tested quickly and either isolated or returned to the classroom or a worker or a healthcare worker. And so, you know, I don't know what the solution is in Rochester uh, or in any other city. I know in the Bay Area, there's a coalition that is working very rapidly with all the different testing entities to figure out how to rationalize them so they're available and people know where they are and how to get them and you can get results quickly and that the results are valid. So, you know, that to me is a local effort. And if there isn't a coalition of people uh, from across healthcare and other industries in your area to do that, you should think about starting one. Tanya Henderson asked about financial incentives and says, do you think uh, about, what do you think about healthcare being paid on a flat rate basis? And would this uh, help encourage preventive measures? Um, I, I think, well, I guess I have a couple thoughts on that. I think payment policy is going to be rethought because let's be honest, uh, we were 10 years into value-based payments and still only really a fraction of real dollars went out under value-based payments. And with the pressure now on organizations, I can't imagine any organization signing up for true risk, two-tailed risk, where it's just not upside if you're good, it's also downside if you're not. So, you know, the the, the legacy payment architecture is sadly broken. We've known that fee-for-service, you know, while there is a bit of a flat fee type of element to DRGs, it's not really. And, and the, the pathway that we thought was Nirvana, I think may get rethought. And I've always been a fan of like an episode payment or something that wraps around the incidence of the disease uh, that does that. And so maybe that will end up, but I, I expect there's gonna be a lot of debate about payment policy, particularly given enormous downward pressure on healthcare costs now in a way that we've never, I think, experienced in my whole career. Uh, but I do think that's separate from preparing for the pandemic. Uh, you know, I think what we see is, to me, the budget for the CDC and some of the other health-related safety entities in the government, some of which are in DHS, some in DOD, some in NIH, um, they need to have funding that can't be manipulated uh, or cut over time as we forget things. And so, I'm thinking that we should have more of a funding model that is standing funding, perhaps equivalent to the way Medicare is funded or something like that. So we never get caught flat footed again. Remember the challenge with this pandemic is if we could go back in time and talk to our uh, forebears who had just come out of that pandemic, they would give us 30 lessons. Yeah, they wouldn't tell us about what to do with iPhones, but they would tell us what really worked. And I'm sure they wrote lots of books about it. They've all been forgotten. 
And so our challenge is how do we put that knowledge into a structure where it will be available in 40 or 50 or 90 years, hopefully never. Uh, and that to me is institutionalization of the process and the money. Uh, Vanessa, Vince Bryant asks, it's exciting to see that the needed push into innovation like telemedicine and ways to monitor and manage patients remotely. As you mentioned, real-time patient data can be delivered through devices like Apple Watch, although US healthcare has been slow to adopt these. We still rely on uh, outdated field data for a care team to react appropriately. Just curious if you have any thoughts from your experience in boards who participate in how we can change this. Well, I, I would say, well, I you know, do. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, honestly, I think it, it's changed with the, um, the information blocking and related uh, interoperability rules that Ankh and CMS released uh, in the middle of all this. And, you, you know, the reason for that is for the first time, it recognizes the ability for technology acting as a patient on their behalf to acquire their data and assimilate it in a third party space under the guise of the current regulations. And that organizations have to make those APIs technically accessible so that it doesn't have to be three forms fill that before you can technically assess it, access it. And so, you know, the finally for the first time, we can start taking healthcare data, the traditional clinical data, you know, the thousand mile checkup data when you go and get your lab test or whatever, and integrate it with daily streaming data that comes from your phone or your scales or something else, and you know, begin working with that data. And you know, to me, this is a huge breakthrough. And I think the challenge for healthcare delivery organizations, hospitals and related integrated systems, who have never wanted to touch all that unclean non-HIPAA data that comes from watches and Fitbits and scales and other things because it's not data that's generated from their, their, their normal uh, clinical processes. They either begin assimilating that data, holding the data, integrating with the patient record, or they're going to lose to non-healthcare companies that decide they'll act on behalf of the patients, grab all the clinical data, assimilate it with them, and do something useful for patient care with it. So I, I think we would be in a better shape if that rule would have been passed uh, a year ago, but it wasn't, but it is here now. And I think coming off of this crisis, you're going to see an enormous change in the appetite to integrate all these different pieces together. You know, I think this concept of the streaming human is really almost with us, where you're walking around streaming healthcare data regularly and uh, there will finally be companies with a business model after this rule has now come out that have an incentive to do something with it to promote your health. So get ready, it's coming. One more question and I have a wrap up for you. Uh, Dr. Adam Kelly asks, uh, with the rapid uptake of telemedicine, there are many clinicians providing telemedicine who have never done so previously. Do you have thoughts on how we monitor quality of care in a telemedicine environment so they're not unintended consequences? Yeah, you know, this is uh, the same thing that happened with teleradiology to some degree. You know, it was first very institutionalized and, you know, practices set it up as a, uh, a parallel process to what was happening in-house. And then suddenly, uh, like now, all the, tele all the teleradiology technology was built into every PACS. And so anybody could become a teleradiologist. And, you know, there was a lot of fear about the quality of reads. Uh, but it turned out, you know, there's a bit of a regulatory process in place among professionals and groups that, you know, those fears never quite materialized. And I think the same thing's here now. You know, one of the things that Medicare did is it allowed um, kind of non-HIPAA technologies like Skype and other technologies to be used for telemedicine. 
and you know it opens it up broadly and i do think there's going to be challenges but you know again this is on the the quality bodies that already exist whether it's at the provider level or at the purchaser level or elsewhere to adapt themselves to this world and you know they've been being told for years they need to do that well the time is here they've got to adapt before I give you the last question, I want to thank you very much. For 30 years, at least, you've been involved in health information, ideas about electronic medical records. You were discussing this when no one had any idea what you were talking about, when it was not even, in, it wasn't even foreseeable, it wasn't even in vogue, it wasn't even close to uh, where it is, and all the things that you've been working on for 20 and 30 years are enabling, I think, all the good things that are happening in the setting of this pandemic. So first, I want to thank you very much for all your service. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so in conclusion, President Trump has announced plans to form an advisory committee to provide guidance on reopening America. Are you on that uh, committee? You served a Republican president. Uh, what would your advice be? Um, I am not on the business committee. I am on the advisory committee to the task force. Um, and, you know, I had the privilege of serving a president uh, who, you know, came out of a crisis and, uh, you know, who, I think recognize the importance of very clear communication and adherence to science and to um, make sure that experts were heard and that there was a singular process uh, and that the government acted in a very clear synchronized manner with all the other parties. So I guess my advice, if I gave it, would be uh, pay attention to what your predecessors have done and maybe uh, uh, follow what they're doing. Uh, I think that would be the best advice I would give. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chet Talks. Subscribe to our podcast to learn more insights on health and technology, and check out our website at chettalks.org.